0: Amen. Well, tonight we're going to be starting a new series. We just finished last week, uh, making our house a home as we traveled through the book of Nehemiah. And tonight we launch Love War, which is going to be a series in the book of 1 Corinthians, starting now, going all the way through the season of Lent and ending on Easter. And why we've called this series Love War is because we believe that one of the things that you see in 1 Corinthians is that there's a battle raging in the church. And in the same way, there's a battle raging in all of us, and that's this, will I love or will I fall into fill in the blank? And so you're going to see in the life of this series as we move through, there's going to be kind of a decision, a war, and you're going to notice that even in your life, you're going to be struggling to choose love and love of God, love of self in an appropriate way, love of others, or maybe pride as we're going to be discussing tonight an overrealized love of self. And so we have to understand a little bit about what's going on in the book of 1 Corinthians if we're going to be traveling through it, especially because as you heard us read, we're starting in chapter 3, so we've moved through a few chapters in the beginning. And what happens in this, this book, it's written for a church in Corinth. And if you know anything about Corinth, it's a very interesting city, and I want you to listen to the complexities of the city and see if it sounds familiar. Okay? Corinth is a city where east and west meet. Meaning it is a city that has people from all over the world. Trade routes are going through. So people come through for a year, for a couple months, but a lot of people stay. And this is a city that has people from every known part of the world living there. So there is a lot of opportunity. There is a lot of wealth because it's a port city. It is really a true melting pot with a lot of opportunity and a lot of wealth. And it also, because of all these cultures and all these people mixing, there's a lot of different belief systems. So you have the Roman philosophy, you have polytheism, you have kind of Eastern and Egyptian mystery religion. You have Jews and synagogues all over the city. And and now in 50 AD, between 55 AD, right around this time when this letter was written, you have the church, you have Christians as well. About 20 to 25 years after Christ was crucified and then resurrected. And not only that, but Corinth, of all the cities in the Roman Empire, was known as the Mecca of sexuality. There's a slogan, but Aristophanes, a philosopher, said he said uh, the slogan that goes around the city that people know even outside of Corinth is to act like a Corinthian, which meant to have sex. So this city is east and west coming together. It's a port city, so you have a lot of wealth, a lot of opportunity, a lot of different belief systems and cultures kind of clashing and mixing, and it is known as a mecca of sexuality. Does it sound familiar? Sounds pretty familiar, right? There's a a statement by a scholar that I stumbled upon this week, and I think it sums it up well, and I think it'll help you not only understand Corinth, but maybe the city that is a lot like Corinth, which is Miami, the city that we live in. Here's what he says. The ideal of the Corinthian was the reckless development of the individual. The merchant who made his gain by all and every means. The man of pleasure surrendering himself to every lust. The athlete steeled to every bodily exercise and proud in his physical strength are the true Corinthian types. In a word, the man who recognized no superior and no law but his own desires. And it is here in this church where Paul, the apostle, plants a church around 50 to 51 AD. And then he leaves. He's gone for about three years to when this letter is written. It's about three years since he's left this church. And in that period of time, things have gone completely awry. He, he probably left feeling good, like, you know, this is great. This is a city where many people would not think that a church would be planted and would grow and prosper, but it did. And so he leaves and he goes to continue doing ministry and planting churches all over the known world. And he hears these reports about what's actually taking place in the life of this church. And it's really bad. And you're going to see as we go through this letter week in, week out, what was actually taking place in the life of the church. It'll make Uh, Any of your church experiences feel wonderful um, compared to what you see here. Maybe just as bad. I don't know what your experience was. But this is interesting because what's happening in this letter after just three years time, the Corinthians who came to believe in the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ have now said, man, we really think it's wise to act like a true Corinthian. And so Paul writes this letter. And he writes to them to, to help address some of the issues. But one of the things that's also very interesting is that Paul and the relationship with the church is not good. The church, the majority of the people in the church do not like Paul anymore. They're really mad at him. And so you have all these factions of people that are like anti-Paul. Some of them, as you heard as we read, are, are pro-Apollos, another pastor, or they're pro-Peter, Uh, which is Cephas, it's really Peter, or maybe another Christian leader. So they're all choosing based upon who they like and what they feel is best and how the church should be run and how it should look. They're choosing different people or they're anti-Paul. And so he's writing it to say, listen, the church is not supposed to divide. There actually is a law that you're to surrender to. There actually is a way in which God has designed for you to live. And this idea that you can just choose your own life and follow your desires completely apart from God and view that as wisdom is foolishness. And that's what he says here in this passage. And he begins to reinforce to them the gospel because they've forgotten the gospel. At one time, they really understood it and they believed it. But but now they're mixing it with everything else. In their life, everything else that is tempting them. You see, they struggled with something that is an age old problem, and that's the problem of narcissism. It's of pride in a negative sense, an over realized love of the self. And you're going to see that play out in the next couple weeks. There's a passage that says in Philippians 2 3 Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. For the Corinthian this was really their motto. Here's their motto. Do everything from selfish ambition or conceit and in pride count yourself more significant than others. And we have to be very careful as we enter this letter to say, man, what's wrong with these people? 3 years and they've become like this. 3 years and they've divided the church in factions and they begin to change the gospel to fit how they want it to look. They begin to to run after all their individual desires, even if it's apart from God's word. And you you can read these letters sometimes and be like, man, who are these people? But you have to take a moment in humility and say, they're probably a lot like me. Because in many ways, for them to be a believer was much more of a risk than it is for us. For for you to show up here on Sunday night, uh, there's not much blowback that you're going to get Unless you tell people, then you may get some blowback. But for them to be labeled a Christian, to go to church, was a very risky proposition. These are not a-religious people. These are not people that have no association with God, and, and, or maybe have just kind of jumped in a little bit. They are sincere in their faith. But they have been blind. They have been fooled by the wisdom of the world to say, you know, you need to act like a true Corinthian. You need to give to the desires of the self. You need to run after any lust and anything that you want. You need to take it because it's your life. You only got one life and you got to live it the way that you want. You need to be proud of everything you accomplish and you need to kind of show it off a bit. And you need to make church the way that you think. Not the way that God thinks per se. But they were believers. They really did take seriously the faith, And so he comes right out of the gate in this passage as he's kind of explained to them the gospel and he's beginning to prepare them in the first three chapters. And he says this in verse 18, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. He says, listen, he, he, Paul goes, sometimes he just goes straight forward. He says, you're deceiving yourself. You think you're wise, but you're not. You think that you can choose how to live and, ha- and, and how to uh, fix and organize the church according to your desires. You think that it's okay to just be proud and, and to kind of flaunt it. It's okay to be anti-me Paul or pro-Apollos or pro-Peter. Or, but you're foolish. If you think that you can choose life and wisdom based upon your own mind without actually even thinking about God and what he says, then, then you're foolish. They've become people that have begun to divide in the church. They're critiquing without listening. They're changing the gospel to fit their fancy. And and Paul says that you're being deceived. You're truly being deceived. He continues on in verse 19. He says, for Paul, the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. The message version says, uh, part of this, one of this verse, it says this. He exposes the chicanery. That's a cool word. When's the last time you heard that? He exposes the chicanery of the sheik. The master sees through the smoke screens and knows it all. See, Paul's very simple in his approach with them. He says, you're being deceived to think that you're wise. You're being deceived to think that you can buy in to all the cultural wisdom, try to run after being a true Corinthian and bring that into the church and just live for your individual desires, disregard or pick and choose the things that God says. That's foolishness. He says to, to make a decision and to live your life without thinking about the divine side of things is foolishness because God knows what you're thinking and he knows that it's futile. And so he tells them, listen, you need to really check yourself and ask yourself, is what you're thinking and what you're believing about yourself and how the church should be run and how your life should look and the decisions that you should make, is it really wisdom or are you being deceived? Are you having the wool pulled over your eyes? When I was a kid, I, uh, I really believed wrestling, wrestling was real. And uh, I thought it was real fighting. If you didn't know, I'm sorry. It's not. But the reason I believed wrestling was real was because they said it was. You know, they said, this is real. And then I watched I was like, this has got to be real. Punching each other in the face or jumping off the thing. That chair looks like it really hurts. Also, I think I just kind of wanted to believe that the NWO was a real thing because it was too cool or, should I say, too sweet. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Some of you are like, what the heck? That was the best. It was this group of people, and they used to have this little slogan. And I just wanted it to be real. I wanted to be a part of it so badly. But then I found out it was not real. But I believed just because people told me. They said, it's real. Of course it's real. And the people that were fighting, they said, it's real. So I believed them. And it looked real. So I fell into it. And the question that you have to ask yourself and work through is, just because someone says something is wise, and just because culture is promoting something as wise, and just because it looks like it may in fact be wise, is it wise? And that's what Paul is saying to them. You're being deceived. You think what you're running after and the way that you're trying to organize church and your life and follow your desires is wise because people are telling you it is, and because it looks like it, because culture is promoting it, but maybe in fact it's not wise. You see, this church was full of people that are narcissists. They loved themselves and their desires more than anyone else. And they placed themselves above others to where it started to create division. And even in many ways above God because they thought that they could decide and choose how God's church should look and be run and how their life should look. And what happened here was self-esteem became self-obsession and confidence became arrogance. I've been asking myself this question this week. What causes narcissism? The thing that we like to say, or at least we like to blame narcissism on, is social media, right? Social media has caused narcissism. You know, all the the pictures, the Instagram, the Snapchat, the whoat, I don't know what else you get. There's like a thousand of them now you can be on. Everyone is just promoting themselves. Everyone is just taking pictures of themselves. It is creating this narcissistic culture. Now, social media may provide a, a platform for narcissists to kind of show themselves off. It may actually put fuel to the fire of the struggle that we all have really of promoting ourselves and viewing ourselves as superior, but it isn 't the match it isn 't the thing that causes narcissism. The thing that causes narcissism is really, and this is kind of the scary reality it 's our heart we all every single one of us in this room has a tendency to believe that what we think is wise, how we def- define church, how we define our life, how we define relationships the desires that we choose to engage in or not engage in, we decide if it's wise. We all have that tendency. And if you trace it back, right, all the things that we believe are wisdom are all traced back to someone else that has told us that it's wise. Maybe our parents, maybe our friends, maybe the media, maybe cultural leaders or community leaders. Someone has, along the way, probably many people have told us that this is wise, And we've fallen into it. We've fallen into the lie that, you know what? Yeah, I I do really need to live for myself. I need to protect myself. I'm really entitled to my desires, and so I have to run after them. I I need to organize things in my life to make myself comfortable because life is short. And I want to be happy. And so I need to do what is necessary to follow my heart and be happy. And we've all fallen captive to this, right? We have, we've been socially conditioned to believe three things. That we are entitled to our desires. That happiness is, act, is found by self-indulgence. <laughs> that purpose is not given. Purpose is found by self-discovery. So you find your purpose by really, really reaching inside and discovering yourself. It's not given to you. You have to find it. Because it's unique to you happiness is through indulging yourself in your desires, and and you are in fact entitled to your desires. We have been socially conditioned to believe these things. But when you look at our culture, and you look at our culture that says, and promotes the idea, the wisdom, that life is to be all about you, you see that show up in many different ways. And one of the ways I alluded to was the selfie. Do you selfie? I don't know. I don't know if I follow you on Instagram, but do you, so this is like a dividing line in our culture, right? We could probably split this room in half pro selfie, anti selfie, right? We could. And here's what the pro selfie people think. You're like, no, the reason I take selfies is because it makes me feel really connected to people. And, you know, I like to share things and events and stuff that's going on. And, um, I just like to take pictures with my friends or myself. And if I'm honest, if I'm really honest I like when people comment and say they like my sweater, or or I look good, or or I get likes. And sometimes I get sad if I get less likes, if I'm honest. And here's the anti-selfie people, right? The anti-selfie people are like, I don't understand why people take selfies. They're so self-indulgent. They're narcissists. Like, who does that? You're sitting at your desk. I don't care that you're sitting at your desk. Why are you taking a picture of yourself? And if they're honest, if the anti-selfie person is honest, they feel really good about putting down pro-selfie people. Right? It makes them feel better about themselves as superior because they don't selfie. See, the selfie is not a new thing. You thought it was like a modern-day current phenomenon. It's not. There's a story in Greek mythology of a man named Narcissus. He was a hunter He was a very handsome man, and he was wandering around the world looking for love. And he couldn't find it. No one was up to par for him. And after he rejects this nymph named Echo, he bends down and he looks into the river. And he catches a reflection of himself, and he falls in love with his own reflection. He is so in love with his own reflection that he cannot pull himself away, and he actually drowns. And then there a plant grows up from that place that he drowns called the narcissus. And this is where you get the word narcissism from. The idea that you love yourself so much you can't even pull yourself away from your own image. It is probably the first story about a selfie. It is the first death by selfie that we've ever had. It's not a new thing. It's not a, it's, narcissism is not a current phenomenon. It may be on the rise, but it's not a new thing. We have always been in love with ourselves. We have always looked for ways to run after our own desires and to make and organize things the way that we view they should look and act and function because we're wise. We believe that. We're above others. It's not a current phenomenon. Psychologists uh, regard that there is two forms of narcissism. There's a grandiose view of narcissism. This is the one that we all think of. It is the person who is extroverted, who is attention-seeking and typically dominant. This is the person that is loud and they want all the attention on them and they want power. But the reason they want power is not to benefit others. They want power because they want the attention and the praise that comes with power. It's a grandiose type of Narcissism, But there's also a vulnerable narcissism. And this person is typically quiet and reserved and very entitled. And they have a really hard time when their expectations or their agenda or the way that they think things should operate are moved. Because they view, though they're quiet, they view their wisdom as supreme. See... There is a grandiose view of narcissism, and there is a vulnerable view of narcissism, but all people that struggle with narcissism all view themselves in a manner above others. In some way, shape, or form, they view themselves as elevated above other people. They have a grandiose view of themselves. Oftentimes, they use other people for praise and for attention, or, they have a really hard time receiving critique because they don't listen well. And they think something like, who are you to say that to me? You you don't know what you're talking about. Have you seen the type of work that you do? Don't come here and tell me how to do my work. Right? Does this hit home for you? If not, you're probably a narcissist. <laughs> because the reality is, we are all narcissists in some way. There." for to varying degrees we elevate ourselves over other people we view ourselves as more wise we view the way that we define our life and the desires that we engage in and indulge in as as wise and, and narcissism is not a new is not a new phenomenon but it is in fact on the rise and most studies say it is so i, I was thinking of what are some ways that narcissism is as it's being labeled is actually maybe in fact, an epidemic in our culture. And so I thought of a few different ways. One is that, and this is talked about a lot, that we give participation trophies, you know? You participate, your kid plays soccer, they're five years old, they're just running around in circles, but they get a trophy. You know, they never even kicked the ball. They didn't even know they were playing soccer, but they still get a trophy because no one can lose. Everyone has to win. Everyone has to be told they're valued, which is a really good thing. But everyone just is entitled to a trophy just because you participate. Or maybe uh, because we are a culture and a people that don't commit to anything. Does that ring true to you? You get an Evite, right? You open the Evite. It does this little cool opening thing. And there's a party coming up on Friday. And it says, will attend or will not attend. And you're mad at Evite. You're like, listen, what are you doing, Evite? Facebook gives a maybe option. Why doesn't it say maybe will attend? Because I would click that. I can't say yes or no, that's a couple days away. What if I get a better invitation? Because my presence is demanded and people really enjoy me. So I need to make sure that I know that I'm choosing the right event that is good for them and also good for me, the one that I really wanna to go to. So I can't commit early. Maybe you've, you sit around in, uh, at your work and you're having lunch and, and people ask the question like, hey, so what'd you do last night? And somebody says, oh, you know, I just went home, got some McDonald's, watch Vampire Diaries. You're like, oh, my goodness. I'm glad I'm not like them. Who watches Vampire? Who eats McDonald's? Right? You view, you elevate yourself over somebody else. Or they go, they say, you know, I just went home and I eat some kale and watch a recycling documentary. You know, and you're like, who are you? Right? Elevating yourself over somebody else. We wear t-shirts, now this is like a cool thing, a t-shirt that says boss, right? Or this guy is awesome. Like, what are we doing? This is a real thing. There's a website called beautifulpeople.com. I don't know if you've heard of this. And they only accept one in five applicants. So you put your picture in there, you write a little description, then you get two days of voting and the members vote. And then if they deem that you are in fact beautiful, you get in to the website, you get to be a member. But then they also will kick you out if you don't look the same. Now, some of you may be thinking, like, I wonder if I'd get in. Don't, please don't go on there and do not do this. But think about that. It's unbelievable. Beautifulpeople.com. You read a Facebook post sometime that somebody, you know, puts up on Facebook because they had to share it. And so I was walking home from work and I saw this guy. He was really hungry and he was asking for food. So, of course, I had to give him some food. Hashtag pay it forward. You know, you're like, why are you sharing that? This is the world that we live in. We are people that are critical, and being critical is good. It's a good thing. But when you're critical without listening, is dangerous because you view your assessment of things as superior, as right, all the time. You elevate yourself over somebody else because they're just being critical of you, and you're not willing to listen to them. So it typically causes you to divide against other people you think about the fact that they don't know what they're talking about my boss has no idea what he's talking about he's doing everything wrong he needs to do it this way and this way and maybe in fact you can bring a tune up maybe you can br- implement some change but oftentimes we do it without listening at all we just come in and we share our opinion we say what needs to happen because this is the right way of doing it and even hitting closer to home, churches are, are born out of a mentality that church is being done wrong everywhere. And this is the right model of church. This is how church has to look. It's narcissistic. And so we have all these different things that are coming out now, right? You have Kickstarter and Indiegogo and fundable. These, some great products are on there, but there's also products that will just steal your money. Because they're sharing, this is how you're going to fix things. This is going to fix security for you. This is going to be the best book or the best style of this you've ever read. The best clothing. And you're going to invest in it and you're going to lose your money. The new normal for men and women that are millennials or kind of the up and coming generation is to change your job four times by the age 32. Because no job is ever good enough. Or you could do it better. Paul is recognizing this in the Corinthians. He knows that they are narcissistic. He knows that they view themselves as supreme and elevated over other people. And they're beginning to divide into factions and people that agree with them. And they're tearing the church apart. And here's what he says in verse 21. He says, let no one boast in men. He says, don't boast in me. Don't boast in Apollos, another pastor. Don't boast in Peter. Do not boast in yourself. Do not boast in men. The church is to look different, and people that follow after Christ are to look different. We're not to boast in other people as if that is, that is how you've made it when people praise you. He says, the wisdom of the world is going to say, seek praise demands praise. And he's saying, do not boast in men, whether it is yourself or whether it is me or whether it is Apollos or any other leader. Do not boast in men because this is Christ's church. This is his world Your life is, in fact, his life. And so if you're going to boast in anyone, you're not to boast in men or yourself. You're to boast in Christ. You see, the Corinthians, in their pride, have turned natural tendencies into exclusive ones. They may have had a natural preference for Paul or for Peter or for Apollos, the style of preaching or their leadership. They had a natural tendency, but they made it exclusive. Because they thought this is how church needs to look, this is what a pastor looks like, this is the right model. Not Paul's, it's Apollos, or not Apollos, it's Peter, not Peter, it's Paul. So began to divide the church because they had a grandiose view of themselves and their wisdom for how things should be run. Don't we do the same thing now, right? Someone asks you, Are you a Christian? You say, Yes, I'm a Christian, but I'm a Presbyterian. Right? I'm a Christian, but I'm a Pentecostal. I'm a Christian, but I'm a Baptist. I'm a Christian, but I'm a Roman Catholic. Or I'm a Christian, but I'm not like other Christians. You know, I'm like cool. I'm like chill. I'm a Christian, but I'm not religious. I'm more spiritual, you know? Or I'm not a Christian. I'm a Christ follower, right? We have all these little things that we say because we want to separate ourselves and divide ourselves from other people because we elevate ourselves Above them, what, what what church do you go to? Or somebody may ask, hey, have you heard about that church? You're like, oh, yeah, I've heard about that church. You don't want to go there. You know, it's like really boring. We're like, oh, no, it's like one of those trendy churches. You know, you don't want to go to that church. You may think, yeah, I, that church is just, it's too corporate, you know? Aren't they Pentecostal? They baptize babies. You don't want to go to that church. Right? We elevate our view of how church should look over other people and how the church is functioning. We don't, we're not concerned whether or not maybe it's gospel centered and they're preaching Christ's life and death and resurrection. It's more about all the preferences and how we think church should look. And so we separate, we divide, we, we gossip, we put them down. Or maybe someone says, you know what, who do you listen to on sermons? Oh, I'm a Tim Keller guy. Right. I'm a John Piper guy. I'm a Rick Warren guy. That's who I follow. I'm a Judah Smith guy. You you fill in the blank, right? It's like, this is my guy. And this is who I, I'm Joyce Myers, right? Like you you choose your person and you elevate them as like, this is how a pastor should look. This is how a sermon should be. And you separate them from other people. We do it in the same way that they did. See, it's okay to have preferences, but what pride does and narcissism is it takes preferences and it creates discrimination. It turns preferences into discrimination where you divide and you stand above and over other people. And that's exactly what happens here. And and Paul says to them, because they're discriminating against each other and against other people and they're tearing the church apart. He says, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Peter or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ and Christ is God's. See, there's only one acceptable form of discrimination in the church, and it is discrimination upon whether or not the real true gospel is being taught and preached. That's the only place where you can have a conversation or a point of disagreement. Not, this is how church is supposed to be run, and this is how a pastor should look and act, and this, you can have preferences. But discrimination is not the life of the church, is not the call of, of a brother or sister in Christ. And Paul says to them, he says, all things are yours. You don't need to discriminate. You don't need to create all these divisions. You already have everything. You don't need to elevate yourself over everyone else because you already have everything in Christ. His challenge here really is to love. It's to love God. It's to love themselves in an appropriate way. And then it is in fact also to love others. You see, God's people are are to be different. You can like hymns more than contemporary style music. You can like a more organic feel, but maybe you could also still learn from a corporate model. You can like a very intellectual sermon, but you could still learn from a motivational sermon. You may feel comfortable in this denomination, but there is much to learn their great strengths of other denominations as well. And see, there's humility there that causes a lack of discrimination and a lack of dividing. C.S. Lewis says, A proud man is always looking down on things and people, and of course, as long as you're looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. This is exactly what is happening in this church it's so what Paul desires for the church to see, not only the church in Corinth, but for us as well, that you don't have to be full of yourself. You don't have to elevate yourself or the other people. You don't have to seek praise and to run after recklessly your desires because you think that indulging yourself is going to make you happy and give you purpose. You don't have to divide and discriminate and gossip and put down others that are different or think different or act different or have a different style of church because you already have everything. All things are yours, He says. You are Christ, and Christ is God's. See, in Christ, he says, you have received everything you need. Everything you could ever want, you already have. By grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, and his life, his death, his resurrection. He presents five realities here. Look at the text. He says, the world, life, death, the present, and the future. Five things that are certain of human existence. Every human being. It's going to be in the world, they're going to have life, they're going to face death, they're living in the present, and there's a future. There are five certain realities that we all face. And if we're honest, we are bound by fear with most of these. What is the state of our world? We're we're fearful of living our life well because we know that death is a certainty and we don't want to waste it and We want to be happy, and we want to be successful, and we want to accomplish our dreams, and we're fearful of the future because we want to get to a certain place, Just nothing wrong with having dreams and having a vision and running towards something, but what happens is because we're so fearful of the future, we begin to question everything in the present, and then we begin to elevate ourselves over other people and and trample other people because we have to get there. We have to get to the future because we're fearful, we're panicked. And Paul says that you already have everything in Christ. And here's what's really beautiful about how he ties these together. Five certain realities, and you have everything in Christ who has conquered those for you. Christ has come into this world, and he planted his flag here. Better yet, he planted his cross here. And because he came into our world, took the form of a bondservant, God become flesh, lived the life that we couldn't climbed up on that cross as he was nailed and lifted high, and he took all the things that we run after, indulging ourselves. He took our pride and our narcissism and our selfishness and our fear and our panic and our burden. He took it all on the cross and he paid for it. So we no longer have to fear death because we've been given life in Christ. We no longer have to be fearful of the future because actually in the present, By surrendering and following God's word, we are actually living out the future and the present. And so we don't have to be panicked. We don't have to be fearful. We don't have to trample other people. We don't have to stand over other people. Because of the gospel, we have everything. We have joy. We have peace. We have comfort. We have hope. We have purpose. Because Christ has given it to us by taking everything that separated us from God away. You see, the gospel gives us the solution to narcissism. It's not just, you know what, this week I'm going to think more about other people. I'm going to be a better person, which is even in itself narcissistic. I can do it, right? I can be better. I'm going to be better. The solution to narcissism is the gospel. It's the reality that Christ has done what you could not. He took everything from you, your sin, your shame, your guilt. He paid it on the cross for you, and he rose from the dead, and now... By grace through faith in Christ, you have everything you need, everything you want, everything that makes you run recklessly after your desires and feeling entitled to them. You actually have them in Christ. And so you can be free now to actually listen to other people, to learn from other people, and most importantly, to love other people, to love God, to love yourself in an appropriate way, and then also to love others. see, the gospel creates a response in us that is one of humility. It creates a response that is, man, it's not all about me. It's not all about my desires. It's not all about my wisdom. There's actually a greater wisdom. And the gospel humbles you to see that. Charles Spurgeon says, humility is to make a right estimate of oneself. Think about that. Humility is to make a right estimate of oneself. How can you make a right estimate of yourself? You look to Christ. You look to the gospel. You look to what God did for you so that you could be in relationship with him. And you can be free now to listen and to love and to learn instead of dividing and elevating yourself. And that's the power that we have in Christ through the gospel by grace through faith in the death and the resurrection of Christ, we can actually elevate love over pride. And we can see that battle swing away from pride to love in our hearts and our thoughts and then even in our actions. Let's pray.